0: Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to Oliver Dudley. Oliver's is probably the most extreme career I've covered to date in terms of its highs and lows. He's a property developer who lost 95% of his wealth during the 2008 financial crash, but has, if you'll forgive the pun, rebuilt his company from the ground up. He's an amateur sportsman who broke the world record for rowing across the Atlantic, despite a deep-seated terror of cold water and he's a motivational speaker who coached the world's number one croquet player. I'm sure you can see why the eclectic directions of Oliver's career appealed to me, but I want to just say a word here about extremes. The tagline of Serendipity Soup is that it's the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. There's a good reason for that, which is that celebrities have careers so extreme that they represent only a tiny minority of human experience, yet we hear an awful lot about that experience. If you're really interested and fancy geeking out on it, it looks as though celebrity status tends to follow what's called a power law distribution. That's the same distribution that describes how wealth and income are divided out in society. Basically, most of us hover around a relatively low value, with just a few hitting unimaginably stratospheric heights. They are the 1% you might have heard referred to by protest movements like Occupy Wall Street, although it's actually more realistically the 0.0001%. Anyway... The point is that rowing long distances almost certainly follows a power law distribution. Most of us don't row at all. A few row a reasonable way fairly regularly, and a tiny minority row absolutely lunatic distances. So why interview Oliver? Because, much more than most people who do this kind of thing, he's happy to be very honest about his own lack of ability and the deep mental trauma that has pushed him to these extremes. Before you give me grief and say that I shouldn't judge Oliver's abilities until I've done something equally as outrageous and difficult, do bear in mind I'm simply quoting his view of himself. And that's what fascinates me about Oliver. He's not an athlete, but he undertook one of the most gruelling physical challenges it's possible to think of. Then he did another one, which I'll keep as a surprise for you. Then he just went back to property development. As will become clear during the interview, I have no desire to emulate Oliver's amazing physical feats. I really want to understand what drives someone to constantly push themselves to try something different, to fail over and over and keep going, because that's ultimately what Oliver's story is about. As he says himself, his is a career riddled with failure. His honesty is intense, refreshing and inspiring. Right. Just before we get to the main event, there's some housekeeping. This was one of the first recordings I did after the Covid lockdowns eased, and I made the mistake of seating Oliver and myself on sofas in his lounge. Technical note for any aspiring podcasters out there if you do that, then your interviewee will lean backwards and forwards in their chair, making the volume of their voice change quite a lot. Editor Anna has done a great job tidying it up, but it still takes a little bit of getting used to. Hopefully, it won't detract too much from your enjoyment of the episode. As ever, there's plenty of discussion about mental health and there is some about childhood trauma too. So do please watch out for that in case it's not what you want to hear about right now. There's essentially no bad language at all until Oliver suddenly drops a single F-bomb into the verbal jungle. So do watch out for little ears nearby. And with that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup.
1: My name's Oliver Dudley and I am a property entrepreneur we as a company, we basically, we find opportunities to add value to a building, a piece of land, uh, property, mm-hmm. by way of normally planning or construction. Okay, what, you knock them down or you... I'm always loathe to knock things down. I think that's the sort of, that's the easy thing, yeah, much easier thing mm-hmm. to do. And for various complex reasons, sometimes that's not the most economical thing to do overall. And it's a very, very, very competitive market so mm. even one two three percent extra costs on a build sheet can, can make or break a deal
0: right and how
1: long have you been doing it for i fell into this almost 20 years ago this month right and by accident i was working in the city in a job i absolutely loathed as a <laughs> junior stockbroker. no and i didn't do any stock breaking i was a paper shuffler basically in my early 20s and my girlfriend at the time we were actually, we were living in a five-bedroom house share that I'd bought a few years beforehand. And I owned a part of the house share. Sorry, you,
0: how old were you at this point where you owned a five-bedroom
1: house share? Well, this was in the mid-90s when property prices were <laughs> very cheap. We bought that house for £190,000. It was a five-bedroom house in Clapham. and I know. An and the market was very cold. And I bought a quarter of it. Mm-hmm. And that was my London home. And I rented out a room. And that's what I lived off. We rent off one of the rooms. And my girlfriend had been living there for a year, year and a half. She'd had enough of the house share vibes, so she said, let's buy a flat. Mm. But let's buy a flat actually means you buy a flat. And this is just after September the 11th had happened, so the London market had gone a bit, there was a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And it was quite cold. And I had a game plan in my head on a Mm. Saturday morning. Walked into the very first agency in Clapham, Old Town. Barnard Marcus, and essentially looking for a a deal because I'm deal obsessed um, and have been since I was a kid. So I walked in and said I was a cash buyer and I was looking for a two-bedroom garden flat in the area uh, and a motivated seller. And even in those days, motivated sellers are still not on every street corner. Hmm. Uh, And in my business now, motivated sellers are the holy grail, but you only come across them once or twice a year. So the estate agent said, well, we haven't got a two-bedroom garden flat for sale with a motivated seller, but we have got a four-bedroom house. <laughs> and the buyer has just dropped out of bed because he had a margin call on the stock markets when, when the markets crashed after September the 11th. So I sort of rolled my eyes and huffed and puffed and reluctantly went there and then to have a look at this house. And it, would have been, it was on the market for four fifty, and it was under offer for there or thereabouts before September the 11th. And I went and have a look at it and I thought this is kind of really interesting. Clearly not two bedroom garden flat. Clearly, <laughs> if I was to buy this, we wouldn't live there because we're back to a house share again. And for a joke, offered three hundred and seventy thousand. Hmm. This is all in the space of about half an hour on a Saturday morning. Hmm. And he counted me at about three ninety. I came back at three eighty five and we agreed three eight seven. Hmm. Now, actually, I had no way of buying the house very easily. It wasn't what I wanted, but I had accidentally discovered a lump of gold from a value point of view. Right. And I ended up buying that, and which obviously didn't go down very well. Yes. <laughs>
0: Precisely <laughs> the opposite of what you were asked
1: to do. And, th- and then I turned it into a buy-to-let. I did it up. This was all whilst I was still working in the city. And then I found four tenants. And just to rub salt to the wound, they were all female. So my, by that stage, my girlfriend was bye-bye territory. Right, <laughs> And within about six months, the market had recovered. Everything was fine. It was back to where it was pre-September 11th value-wise. And I was suddenly sitting on 50, 60, 70,000 pounds of capital growth in a handful of months. Hmm. And my yield, gross yield was over 7%. And I just discovered by accident this finding value in property, finding value by it's less than it's worth, Yeah, adding value through a light refurb, crystallising an income and a yield. And I absolutely loved it. And I quit my job. Hmm. And that's how I started in the property world. So what was it that you loved about it? I think about that project, it was about finding value, finding something that
0: other people hadn't spotted.
1: Yeah, because it is about... I mean, much more now because of technology, because everything's online. Yeah. And and there are tens of thousands of eyes for for everything out there. Hmm. It's a much more equal playing field. So, yeah, so spotting the value and then actually pulling it off. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody many times in my life I've done things sort of against the odds or the hard way in endurance sport and in my business. And I think I get a subconscious thrill out of against the odds sort of pulling it off Mm. and and actually every property transaction I ever do is always against the odds because you're always looking for the one in a hundred opportunity 99 things we look at as a business now goes in the bin
0: really Mm. part of the theme of the the podcast is the idea that everybody said oh you you should learn from failure we should talk about failure but people very rarely actually do talk about failure right and I think an element of serendipity is sometimes the failures that you face. So you're talking about there a one in a hundred, for example. Yeah I I'm mean, not saying that the other ninety nine are are kind of failures and write-offs. I'm just saying that's quite a small chance of hitting the it's sweet spot. Hitting isn't the balls it? off. I mean I actually get goosebumps
1: hearing you say the word failure because unless you have failure, I don't have a business. Because of this, it's so hard to find what you're trying to buy. So you have to fail, 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 fail. My football analogy to this is a striker running lines in the box and when you watch match of the day you don't see the 20 or 30 runs he's running to the box mm. to finally connect his head to the ball in the air it goes in the top corner plus the tens of thousands of runs in training just to get for that one goal yeah and that is very 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 similar to my business of you know, we probably do five to ten transactions a year and we probably look at 500 to a thousand opportunities
0: wow
1: so it's a hard it's a hard game Yeah. But failure is a really interesting thing. I mean, my whole career and life has been riddled with failure. And I think that actually, if you let that emotionally capitulate yourself, Mm. then you'd never get out of bed. And I just, I've gravitated to work in an industry where every day is failure and every week is failure and every month is failure. But within that every day and every week and every month, there is one nugget. I mean, I was thinking about this earlier this year, my transactions have been centered around one person. Out of probably out of about a thousand between people between my staff and and their network of introducers, it's all come down to one person. And the year before was probably the same one person. Really, is that it? Yeah, it's the old sort of Pareto's law, eighty twenty rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, eighty percent of our profits this year have come from from one source. And it's that wonderful Gary Player analogy the harder you practice the luckier you get i guess failure from what we do is almost like rejection you know to go slightly wider if you like on on failure i've lived through a very extreme business failure through a credit crunch and that's definitely shaped and formed me and i was working in the north of england when the credit crunch came mm-hmm. and the trouble with the north of england compared to the south back then but i'm sure it's not that different now it's just the state of liquidity in the property market. So Bear Stearns came along, there was a cold chill, and then obviously layman's, as we all know about what happened. And in the north of England, prices dropped dramatically, but they weren't necessarily reported as dramatically as I believe they were because there were so few transactions, you didn't really have the data because people couldn't buy because of the lack of liquidity. Hmm. So I was involved in a number of projects. One of them was I pre-sold 36 flats and was making £10,000 per flat and waiting a year and a half for the construction. And in the middle of all that, Bear Stearns started, was the first domino really. And that was a lot of money to lose as a profit coming right away, over a third of a million pounds Yes, back in 2000 and eight or whenever it was, 207, 208. And, yeah, I lost certainly well over 95% of my wealth in, in that whole year of my life. And as a result, and it took me a long time to mentally recover from I'm that. I'm not
0: surprised, 95%.
1: If not more, really, yeah. I, it was a complete wipeout. I took very high risks and I walked away from some projects. And I then took a sabbatical
0: right,
1: for two years and... And I can come on to what I I did in that sabbatical shortly. But what I really learned from that failure was my relationship with risk. As a young, early 30s, bullish, the market's going up, up, up. I wouldn't call it cockiness, but certainly a confidence and you back yourself. Mm. And that has now made me a very cautious person. And I would say I'm now certainly no more than a medium risk taker. So when we're out looking for these opportunities and you're pre-filtering 500 to a thousand opportunities a year mm. i'm not prepared to take a risk on anything that could literally mean the end of the business if something happened to the economy overnight so i.e the things that you can't control right and if we make a mistake on something we can't control i.e there was i don't know contamination in the land or a structural issue we hadn't picked up then that's kind of something completely different that's us not doing our our, our research. Sure. So I don't think failure is something to be ashamed of. It's almost like I wonder if
0: society thinks failure is a a bad word. I think there's this sense where people try and say that it's not, but they're kind of intellectualising it and saying, yes, failure, we all recognise that you learn from your failures or you learn from your mistakes. But at an emotional level, I don't think people have got past it at all because failure hurts, right? Yeah. using the word failure, but I feel like it's quite harsh, to label the credit crunch is, is something that's way beyond, above your and my head. So there's this stuff going on in the system, and it, it happens to you. How did it feel? It, it sounds like it hit you very hard.
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely hit me very, very hard. I I definitely hit, you know suffered depression. And I think when you spent a decade building your life yeah. as a serial entrepreneur and creating wealth, which is an entry level to one of my highest values, which is freedom... Then suddenly to lose all of that means not only have you lost your money, but you've lost the very thing that you need to create wealth, which is money. (laughs) Because that's all I've ever really known. For Mm. me, money makes money. So that means you take that away. You've either got to reinvent yourself as a broker who's after fees, or you've got to raise money externally. Uh, Neither of those two things i would ever done before. So so to sort of slightly go off on a business tangent, but wonderful, incredible serendipity, buying that very first house in Clapham was incredible serendipity, because who knows where my life could have gone, had it not been for that rainy Saturday morning, walking into that estate agent, that was one of those sliding door moments. And, then, yeah. and and the other one in my life was at a dinner party in, in August 2007. And I overheard this chap who I hadn't even spoken to, didn't even know his name, and he was talking to somebody next to him. And I heard him say these now two words that are um, ingrained in my head, Hmm. ocean and rowing. And to rewind a couple of years, I was um, just casually reading the Sunday papers one day and uh, absolutely absorbed by uh, the James Cracknell and Ben Fogle story. Hmm. And I remember reading that and we all like to sort of fantasize and sort of imagine and, and think gosh, I'd love to row
0: the Atlantic Ocean. Do you? Because I see them do that, and I don't think I want to row the Atlantic Ocean. I I admire what they've done, but it never occurred to me that I would want to or could do the same thing.
1: Well, you've kind of almost said what I was about to say, (laughs) which which is great, because then the rational... You've done exactly what I did, which is the rational brain then kicks in. Mm. So my rational brain was... I broke my neck in 2000 playing rugby, so there's a complete physical reason to not do that. Gosh. I have a childhood fear of being in water out of my depth. (laughs) Right. Um, This isn't promising. Carry on. No, this is not promising. And and cold water, unfortunately, I had a a nanny that used to torture me, basically, with cold water and throw me in the pond and cold baths. And still to this day, like, cold water in a shower will trigger me. So... slightly amusingly, when I was at my prep school in the annual swimming gala, they always had the race at the end for the four kids that were never in a race. (sighs) I always came last. Very humiliating. (laughs) But so such is my extreme negativity association with water. So therefore it's utter lunacy, isn't it, to start
0: fantasizing about
1: rowing an ocean. If
0: you don't mind me saying so, yes. Yes, it it
1: is. But I think what's really interesting about that is... There's a, well, A, there's a naive inbuilt. Uh, Also, I've never rode, or even (laughs) apart from probably in height. height I've never been on a rainbow in my life. Yes, I am somebody that has partly an inbuilt naivety about me. So I can say yes when the normal thing is to say no. And also I've got this extreme drive that comes from failure. I want to be a professional rugby player that with hindsight wasn't big enough or good enough to be, but that was still what I wanted as a child. As a late teenager, rugby was my identity and I was quite lost as a kid and I had a very emotionally challenging childhood. I think I felt very, very small and insignificant as a child for things that are actually well documented out there and things were out of my control. And I, looking back, had this... Desire to prove something to myself. I never made it in the professional arena in sport, even though I got up to sort of England rugby student trials and played for Southwest Students and
0: Right, so, and so was it was always, a reasonable dream, you know. It yeah,
1: was... yeah, it was a reasonable dream, but, but there was this sort of just burning desire all the way through school for 10 years, well, for nine years. I was always second team B, second, second, second. Never once played... And then in the age 17 in the summer holidays before my final year at school, I just made a commitment to myself. I'm going to get into the first team and that's what I'm going to do. And it was that same sort of, I want to row an ocean mentality. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prove that I'm not small and insignificant to myself. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I did get into the first team for the whole season and, and it was great. And that's where I got my identity. So coming back to rowing the Atlantic was... I just dismissed all the rational reasons, and it was just like, I want to prove something to myself that I can do something in a sporting arena of significance.
0: Mm.
1: This is my one opportunity. And I am somebody that inherently spots opportunity. I was brought out in Portobello Road as a son of an antique dealer, and the whole life was about spotting opportunity in that arena. And and rowing the the Atlantic Ocean was spotting the opportunity at this dinner party. And so I got into the boat, well, I got into the squad, got into the team, and, you
0: know, we we did... I will show you, actually. Yeah, go on. That was the... Oh, wow. So, um, Oliver, for the listener, Oliver's just uh, taken a framed picture off the wall, and the picture is a certificate, Guinness Book of World Records, and it says... The fastest row across the Atlantic east to west is thirty-three days, seven hours and thirty minutes, completed by Oliver Dudley and the crew of La Mondiale, UK Ireland, led by oh is that right? Levan Brown. Leven Brown, sorry. Led by Levin Brown between fifteenth december two thousand seven and seventeenth of january two thousand and eight. Wow. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing.
1: <laughs> That's thirty-three definitely...
0: days of solid rowing. <laughs>
1: That's yeah it's, it's, it's two hours on two hours off for a month so that's like the equivalent of well 12 hours a day of exercise so it's about six half marathons a day for a month when you break it down
0: but also two hours of not even really no, sleep i would imagine. I mean
1: it is very it's very extreme there's 14 people in the boat i'm I, probably about a meter wide the boat in in major atlantic swells freak waves didn't know any of the crew so yeah it was certainly extreme
0: Yes, hmm. that's, that's a good word for it. Okay, and so Oliver's also taken this off the wall. It's framed Surrey Advertiser, 8th of February 2008. The very highbrow Surrey Advertiser. The, the Surrey, oh, and there you are. So there's a picture of Oliver looking, I have to say, for the ladies, this is a good picture, I would say. He's looking very rugged, top off. Thank goodness you've got some shorts on, there. because didn't James Cracknell and uh, Ben Fogle do it naked to prevent
1: chafing? Uh, yes, they did, yeah.
0: You decided not to go that route? Well, there was, Maybe one, just for the there, w-
1: there was one chap who went naked for one shift, and you're sitting on, when you start, you sit on start, yeah. because these things these break down. You sit on a sheepskin, oh, and, he oh, went, and he went oh. on a white sheepskin, and then the chap coming for the next shift was pretty unamused yeah and that sheepskin
0: got tossed into the water and he never went naked again who'd have thought that would, that would be the downside but there's a picture of the boat next to you and i'll try and put it on the show notes but that boat is small it kind of is about 47 50 foot kind of looks like a yacht head-on the headline says oliver triumphs <laughs> over fear of water to complete world record rowing feet
1: but linking this back to serendipity and failure you know my failure was breaking my neck, not being a rugby player, that's created this or helped to shape this extreme yeah. need, if you like, to achieve something significant through sport. And and I wonder if I hadn't had that failure, if I wouldn't have had that, that for me was an overwhelming success in terms of the life experience and the life prize. And never in my wildest dreams when I read that, that article in the newspaper did I think I would actually an Ocean, it was pure fantasy. And then that went on to lead to another event, which was arguably harder and crazier because uh, this was a running event and I'm not built as a lean, mean runner.
0: You have more of the build, I would say, <laughs> of somebody who is, is in the scrum. I, I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah, looking at your yeah. build and your ears, especially, and saying that maybe you <laughs> yeah. were a prop,
1: possibly. Um, no, I wasn't a prop. No, I was a flanker. Flanker, was the sort that of, would
0: have been my second choice. Yeah,
1: the the, the screw-loose, fearless, lunatic, hence why I break my neck, really, because oh, I couldn't contain myself. So, yeah, so not a runner, never run a marathon, and, and one of the chaps in the boat. Yeah. Stuart, he, he said to me once, let's do another world record event in a sport we've never achieved before or attempted. Which was which was running. So the idea was to do the first ever marathon in each continent of the world in consecutive days. So we agreed to I mean, again, this is just so lunacy. Yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah, I could do that, of course. I could run seven marathons in a week across the world of course you could do that 90 kilos never run before or never never ran a never ran a proper race and so I said yes and then I sort of shake my head in disbelief here because it's so stupid in a way I went out that evening did a six mile run and tore my groin and we were leaving in about seven weeks and I still refused to accept defeat because this sort of linking this extreme need and desire to achieve something great. And again, it's about for myself and probably proving this sort of you're stupid, you're worthless or insignificant, this maybe dialogue that I've been brought up with and shattering this limiting, I would call it a limiting belief. And and that's really where, where I get my drive from in life, which is fantastically, I mean, that's a failure in a way. You could argue to think like that as a child, yeah. It's in accidentally when it virtually turning into a positive as an adult. This this driving mm. force. I then had to basically fix a groin tear in the space of seven weeks, plus get fit, mm. plus get muscle memory. They call it muscle memory in long distance running, so your body is used to that sort of long distance. Yeah. And I sort of, and, and by a stroke of unbelievable fortune, I managed to find one of only two publicly available specialist running machines that you'd put in like a wetsuit and zip yourself into this running machine and it would pump air under you to reduce your body weight and there's only two um, available in the world uh, to the public for example paula radcliffe she used to have one at her house so it's for professional athletes and one of these two was in clapham (laughs) (laughs) what are the chances yeah i would go to the clinic quite regularly and reduced my body weight by up to about 80%. And at the same time, I was working with a miracle man of a worker. I call him the human horse whisperer. He's called Gary Ward. He's a movement therapist, movement specialist, and he specialises in taking people out of pain. And, you know, there's no way in a million years I would have even got to the start line of this trip had it not been for him and this machine. And then probably about week three into this injury, and we've got about four weeks left, I'm in the clinic waiting to use the machine and I'm reading the newspaper and I read about a, a, a man whose name shall remain nameless um, who's done the world's first ever completed seven marathons in consecutive days on each continent of the world and we had invited him to join us at uh, a charity race and he saw an opportunity, I assume, to go and be the world's first. And we never knew anything about it. So we were devastated and we lost our BBC News coverage. We lost ABC News. And suddenly here I am now faced with this injury, trying to get fit. And now we're going for a world second, which is sort of completely unnecessary, really. Mm. And a couple of days later, I had this penny drop moment of, hang on a sec, what is an ultramarathon? So obviously I didn't know, Right. Googled it, and the entry level for an ultra marathon is 50 kilometres, and obviously a marathon is 42. So okay, fine, well, we'll do an eight, eight kilometres extra. What's what's eight kilometres? Is... So we got BBC and ABC and America back on board, and thought this time we're definitely not going to tell anyone, so this situation doesn't happen again. And we flew to Punta Arenas in Chile to be the world's first ever attempt at these ultra marathons and consecutive days and we started in antarctica i brought gary with me and i, I genuinely didn't, didn't know if i was going to do one kilometer two kilometers half a half an ultra or finish the whole thing on day one and i would sort of run five k gary would help me with some some movement exercises and another five another five and, then, and eventually i got to a marathon distance 42k and i remember looking at my my watch. So this is in Antarctica. I've never been to that part of the world in my life. Cursing the guy that had done the marathons because I still had another eight kilometers to go. Oh, God. <laughs> and so, um, were you running through snow then? No, Antarctica. it was like mid, mid, mid summer. So it was March, and it's a tiny, tiny season, tiny window of opportunity, even in the summer. Yeah. To get the planes in and out, you need lots of luck, and hmm. um, with the weather window. And we had lots of luck, running past penguins. <laughs> And seals. So it, it was beautiful, completely clear day. And eventually, we did, I did fifty k, and I was, I mean, beyond. Just I can't even get words out of how shattered I was. I was broken, absolutely broken. And we took off from Antarctica and flew, flew back to Punta Arenas, and it's sun's going down, and we all just sat on that plane in silence, four of us, and fell asleep and woke up, and because of the way the international round the world ticket worked with this economy class ticket on American Airlines it meant that we had to then run our next marathon that night or ultra marathon so we had about two hours landing in Chile to to have a turnaround get changed have something to eat and off we went again and the three lads were up front and I was behind and I was I think I was in tears really early on it was just I was just thinking this is this is really, this is too much. It's too much on my emotions, my organs, my physical body. And Gary came and ran with me and we ran at a slow and steady pace and stopped, did some, some special movements for my groin and shuffled along and got through the night and um, finished as the sun was rising. And so I've now done 100
0: kilometres.
1: In two in, days.
0: In one day in mean, one day? Yeah. It, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay.
1: And you're kind of like, okay, my groin's held up here. This is interesting. Let's see how we get on the third The third one. So we, we spent a day, the day two was flying, hop, skip and a jump up to Los Angeles and did that. Then we flew to Australia. I think it was Australia for number three. And then went to Hong Kong. And I remember doing a, BBC Radio 5, five live interview at sort of three or four in the morning UK time. And they were like, you've broken the back of it. You've done, this. you're now four and a half marathons in. And I was feeling really, really, really good. Very confident. And then about an hour later, my body just blew up. Dehydrated. My feet completely swelled. And there's actually a photo of, of me. Lying on my back with my feet elevated in the air with probably about 20k to go. I'd never been to Hong Kong and the humidity was brutal. And we limped over the line and just finished. That was I think that was the slowest one. We had 12 hours between landing and taking off. And I think that might have taken about 10 hours. But now you're like, okay, hang on, this really is on. Two to go. Body still held out. Just. The, the groin is held out. And we took off from Hong Kong, flew to Joburg. And as we were coming into the land, <clears throat> I was just vomited everywhere. And that was it. My body packed in. My feet were twice the size. I had my feet in, on the plane in carrier bags with ice in. And I basically hadn't taken on enough liquids, bringing it back to failure, that I had failed to look after myself, which is understandable because you are completely delirious. Your sleep is sitting upright in an economy-class plane. And I hadn't taken enough calories. There wasn't enough liquid in, but I still wanted to carry on. And this is this sort of naivety that I talk about and stupidity of you've got to. Everything in life is risk, isn't it? Mm. Getting in your car is risk, and it's about assessing risk. And maybe in my forties, I I see risk very differently to my thirties in all parts of my life. Mm. And I was so hell bent on doing this event that I didn't think about the consequences to my organs and my body and I had to be really, really, really talked down into doing event number six by the organizer of these people we met on the internet to help us. And so I went to hospital, got put on a drip and felt a million dollars. Never had a drip before, but it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Came out and felt like King Kong. I'm like, come on, yep. we're on. And the, and this this chap from the from the athletics club said no. So I just ignored him and went ahead and started running did about 15k and it went down like a leveling with him and my other team members and they finished theirs and and then that was the end for me i had done 5.3 and they expected me to be part of the team and get on the plane with them and go home with them and watch them finish it and i was like no wild horses would not stop me finishing this event I may not be doing it in seven days and they got on the plane went home I found the hotel and and I got chatting to the checkout clerk who must have been in his late teens and he just kind of took pity in a way and spoke to his parents and they came up with hatched the plan that they would come and pick me up at six in the morning and I'd redo the whole 50 kilometers and there would always be one of the family mum dad daughter or son, with me for the whole event. And we did, like, 5K loops around their house. And, I mean, these people were angels, complete strangers, and we did 5K. I would literally, without wanting to be graphics, go to the tip on the loons, have a terrible time in the, in the bathroom, come out, another 5K. And this repeated for probably about seven loops, at which stage I was absolutely done. Um, not quitting done, but I had to pass out and go to bed. And I said to him, this teenager, please wake me up by this time. Otherwise, I won't be able to finish it and I won't be able to get my flight. And I'm in a very, very deep comatose sleep at this stage. The time has been and gone. I asked him to wake me up. And then probably about an hour after that, he came rushing in and going, they've done it. They're on BBC World News. They've they've completed the 777. It's fantastic, isn't it? And and I'm not ashamed to say that whilst I was delighted for them, my ego completely kicked in, and my that just this driving force of of, of I have to complete this. And again, I say wild horses wouldn't have stopped me. Such as this, this need to to complete the event. And at 49.999 kilometres, there was this family with the sun going down, and they had a red ribbon and flowers and a bottle of champagne. It gives me goosebumps now. And, and it was just the most beautiful thing that there they were, these complete strangers, to help me in this moment. And the plane was leaving about an hour and a half after this, and they drove me straight to the airport. And I just made the, the flight, and I sat on the seat, passed out, woke up, went to Hyde Park, and, and limped through it. And I did it in eight days and 90 minutes.
0: <laughs> Incredible.
1: I'm not sure I've actually ever, ever shared this story in such detail, arguably harder than, a, than the ocean rowing boat, because you can quit at any time. Yes. That rowing boat, you're in it. And also, you are part of the 14-man team. And there was a driving force to not want to be the weakest link. I might have been the weakest link because I was not a rower and I clearly didn't like the fear of being in the water and coming out of the boat and, and drowning instantly. But being driven by fear of being the weakest link and letting people down was a very helpful thing that got me through that. Mm. that boat. And as an individual person, even though I was part of a four-man team, I was still an individual, and the, sort of, and the impact on the body because it's just pounding day in, day oh. out. So that was definitely harder. And still at this stage, I've still taken a sabbatical out of property. And I came back to the UK and I reflected. I've done two very extreme endurance events as a complete novice in each sport, and went for world record attempts on each of them. And I kind of thought there has to be some learnings here for that wonderful cliche of we've all got our own Everest in us. Mm. Mine was clearly reading that newspaper and and I'm sure you've got your own Everest in you. Of that thing that you think you'd never actually really do it or achieve it, we as humans, we live in our comfort zone most of the time. Mm. But you have to have a significant reason to want to go and do your Everest. And I've learned so much of how to get the body prepped and ready and out of pain and the mental sort of aptitude for that that I created a brand called Think Possible and Think Possible was really a sort of a performance coaching and movement therapy business it was just me and I only did that for about a year and a half and probably like my proudest moment within that was coaching that there's two different types of croquet like snooker and pool and I worked with the world number one equivalent of snooker, and he was the world's top six at pool. Now, a bit like Steve Davis winning world champion in snooker in pool, no one had ever done the equivalent in croquet. And to cut a long story short, I worked with this wonderful chap, Reg Bamford. Didn't know anything about croquet. I still don't know anything about croquet. And we micromanaged him on and off the lawn, broke it down into probably 50 or 60 components. And a year and a half later, he became the world champion in both. <laughs> and it was just wonderful sort of achievement as a, as a coach in a complete random sport.
0: I read a book, I can't remember the name of it, but it was by Charlie Borman who did the motorcycle, um, motorcycle uh, long way down and yes. long way round. And he did the Paris Dakar rally on a motorbike with yeah. two other guys. And partway through, he had a really bad crash and, uh, spoiler alert for anybody who wants to read the book, I'll put it in the show notes, uh, he breaks both his wrists. And so that's out. You can't really carry on there. But the other two guys kept going. And then at one point in in one of those kind of Western Sahara places, he's got get his bike out for yet another sand dune and it's kind of you know, getting stuck. And this one guy is just like, he stops and he says, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? (laughs) He switched off his autopilot. Mm. He suddenly started thinking and he was like, what on earth am I doing on this ridiculous vanity trip? And and then the other guy just kept going and he finished and he was really happy. And I thought, that's interesting because obviously Charlie Borman physically couldn't carry Mm. on. The other two guys were physically well, but this one guy... Just suddenly something kicked in. He was like, Why am I doing this? Thinking about what what you were doing there. There just seems to be there's a mentality that, that doesn't stop to say, Why am I doing this? or or maybe it does briefly and then says, No, I'm gonna carry on. And I'm just interested in what it is mentally that keeps your broken body pushing and pushing and pushing and not giving up. Like
1: I used to do sort of motivational talks. I actually was terrified of being on stage and I used to have panic attacks beforehand and and I stopped doing them because the the drawback to me was worse than the benefit to me. There is a a bit like my fear of water. There is an inherent sort of being on stage that I didn't like. But Mm -hmm. one thing I did like was I'm just a regular bloke in terms of I'm not an Olympian. And I felt like an audience member could identify with what I did more than, say, a Steve Redgrave um, just because they could never be Steve, on the balance of probability, as Steve Redgrave. And I was really disconnected to myself about the answer to your question, which is actually why? And I think why is the one of the most brilliant and underused words in the English language that most toddlers. Why? Hmm. Why? Why? And actually, why anything? And why did I go and get in a rowing boat? Why did I reinvent myself as a property guy again? with all the extreme loss. And it's taken me, to be honest with you, a lot of years of soul searching and therapy. And it comes really back to what I was talking about earlier, which is feeling very less than invisible, insignificant from my very early days. And a a very, very emotionally challenging environment I was brought up in. And I think there's a part of me that wanted to just prove all of these things wrong to myself. Mm. I heard you I really registered what you said earlier, which is about vanity project. And instantly my brain said to myself, hearing you say that, none of this has been a vanity project for me because it's all about being proving something to myself. And that's why I was a very average rugby player. The idea that I got to any level I did was absolutely outrageous because I was average, but I was so driven and driven and driven to prove I'm something. And I think it's this wave and wave and wave of failure. My whole life has been riddled by failure. And it seems to drive me even more. That's not to say that if I have another major failure, so we business, that I would ever get up again, because I might not. I'm not complacent and I don't take it for granted. But I guess I've learned to channel my emotional weakness to make it a strength at times but it's certainly not consistently a strength. You have your moments and got four staff and there's risk that comes with that. And bringing it back to properties, that's a wonderful cliche, you're only as good as your next deal. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, I've told you earlier, I had a nanny that was was an evil woman, quite frankly. I was never comfortable to be on a stage talking to an audience and even disclose what I've just told you because A, it's deeply private and B... Maybe there's a sense of shame or embarrassment. And and doing that Atlantic trip, we're not allowed to spare on this, but it is a fuck you to her. And it's me getting my power back. Not that that was a conscious decision I made, but it is me you know, you took my power away from me, aged four, five, six, with everything to do with water. And there I was humiliated as a child in these swimming galas. And I'm kind of very proud of that. I've... Not to say I still don't like cold water, and I would never do a triathlon or anything because of the swimming. But hey, maybe, maybe that's my next kind of thing of, of going to get some swimming lessons and getting comfortable in water as a sort of mm. as a life achievement.
0: The phrase "vanity project" I was not applying to you no, at all. No, no, I, of these guys in the I, no, I, car d- rally. I didn't.
1: I didn't have any sense you were, but I still think it's interesting that around extreme endurance sport because I remember during the Atlantic when we were out and we set off from, from the Canary Islands. Mm-hmm. And my daughter at the time was about three months old. And one of the chaps, on he was a rower and he also made a documentary, Ocean's 14, and <laughs> which, which incidentally won the Adventure Film Festival Award. And we did a piece to camera for 20, 30 minutes. And I was actually crying because if I hadn't come back off that boat, and there's a, I think statistically at the time, there's about, let's say between two and four had died. Two, two people had died in an, in an ocean rain boat. So statistically, one in a hundred chance of death, which is pretty high. Yeah. Nothing like Everest. And it was a very profound moment of, is this extremely selfish to go and do what I'm doing when you have a child? Is this a vanity project? And comes back to why. Why are you doing this? Obviously, I did come back, but maybe for somebody like me that has got this overwhelming sense of need as opposed to want to achieve something significant because I came from such an emotional place of minuti that I was better off taking on the balance of probabilities taking the odds of not coming back. Therefore, it's not a vanity project for me not that I'm going to sit here and prove it's not, but I'm sharing with you my sort of internal dialogue I had in the hours before we set off. And what was important to me, that links to the driving force of why, why would you go and do that? Any sane or rational person with all those obstacles of the things I listed of, you know, the broken neck and the, The water and never being in a rowboat wouldn't wouldn't do it. Does that answer your question?
0: It really does. I think there's definitely a sense that people can imprint their own worldview onto the things other people are doing. So they could look from the outside and see, if you don't mind me saying, you know, you see somebody who's been to a prep school, who's very well spoken, and he's gone out there with the boys and they've had an adventure. It's very easy, if you want to be cynical, to imprint that on... Absolutely. So I guess it comes back to your point of you needing to be really certain why you're doing this. And to bring it further back to the guys who did the Paris Dakar rally, mm. I think the guy he finished knew why he was doing it, and he never lost whatever that drive was, and I don't know what it was. It's quite an easy book to read. It doesn't go under the surface. Whereas the other guy, obviously, there was that moment of self-doubt where he was like, why am I doing this? Really, why am I doing this? It seems like you had that answer because you wouldn't have done what you did. Well
1: I didn't at the time because it was so deep rooted and so subconscious. Right. So I definitely didn't at all. But it was this folded just I'm just going I'm going forward, I'm going in that direction. Mm. And that's that. So it was definitely only in retrospect I think in performance coaching and reading up on things, why is one of the most significant and important words. I'm sure if I was to ask professional athletes who've worked with professional mind coaches, you know, why do you want to be the best in the world? Why did Andy Murray want to be the best at what he did? Because I think to be the best, the best, the best, I'm talking only about elite yeah. sport here, I'm not talking about you and me Or Unless you can connect your why, then you have got a gigantic mountain in front of you. And... I think now I've kind of done a lot of work around my why I've lost a lot of desire to go and do another big event like this Mm. (laughs) because I feel more content and at peace with my conscious answers around what's the why proving something to myself. Do I need to go and do that again? Not really. No. Mm. So I've kind of, it's now I've channeled to bring this back to sort of business. And my Everest now is my business. I channel my energies, in quite a sort of in a very driven way into this business in an industry that is all about failure everything you touch is failure 99% of the time as opposed to say an estate agent which every month every week you sell things you score goals you score goals you score goals and I think you've got to have a certain sort of relationship with failure to be able to work in that industry and go home every night because You've got absolutely nothing tangible to show for your day and week.
0: Yeah. If it's not too impertinent a question, do you see the the seven ultramarathons, Hmm. do you see that as success or failure? Because in one sense, you did it. But in another sense, you missed the target that you'd set. But if you'd (laughs) said to me, I'm going to do seven ultramarathons in eight days and and 90 minutes... I'd have been like, that's, a, that's incredible. So when I used to do my talks on stage, I would
1: often, if not always, talk about my success was getting to the start line and not the finish line. And that, that gives me goosebumps to say that to you because I feel so strongly about if you want to go and attempt anything in life that you think is audacious and outrageous relative to you, your emotions and your physical ability, your mindset... Any obstacle you can have could be money. And to get to the start line for anyone, I think is a remarkable achievement. And to be honest with you, if I'd got to Antarctica, and my leg had blown up after one kilometre, I still would have had great pride in in attempting the impossible. Yeah. And that's why the business was called Think Possible. So I see huge success. And I remember when I was on the rowing boat, and this is in the documentary, one of the chaps on there a phenomenal river rower, a very, very driven man, a phenomenal manner, an athlete, I definitely was not an athlete, and midway through he he saw success only as breaking the world record, whereas to me, success was rowing an ocean, yeah, <laughs> and completing that, and fair play to him he he was the captain of the rowing personnel and he drove and, drove and drove and drove and drove and drove us to the point where at one stage we were rowing in the same number of strokes or similar number of strokes as an Oxford Cambridge boat race. That was only for one, maybe one shift and really pushing people to the point of their bodies breaking down because we had lost three days in the tropical storm. So we were always three days behind the record and we had to claw that back. And it's that fine balance of push people so far, the bodies break down and we couldn't carry on rowing. Yeah. And so linking that back to success and failure, success for me in both of those events was getting to the start line and primarily and second was crossing the finish line. And strangely, third was getting the world record because, mm. of course, that's a wonderful achievement, but but that wasn't how I defined success. How do you define it then? No? In business, let's say. What would be the equivalent of getting to the start line in business? This is, I think, a very good example with my business. My current business is called In5 Group. And I set that up with an investor partner. And the idea was that he was going to be the seed capital. Uh And I was going to be the managing director and be the brains behind the operation. I certainly was not wealthy, independently wealthy at all. This is only probably three years ago. And then basically we're not aligned at all. So my investor had gone, I had an employee, he needed to be paid, and kind of, let's use a running analogy here, I was one kilometre into my 777 here, and suddenly there ain't no money to carry on, and I ended up keeping all the shares of the business as a result of this non-alignment, shall we say, and... I think it would, it would have been just been very easy to shut the doors and go, I'm sorry, Mr. Employee, but there's no funds to pay you. And we're one kilometre in and that's we're over. Mm. And it just comes back to this innate inability to accept defeat, maybe. And I just refused to be defeated. Again, I say that Gary Player, the harder you practice, the luckier you get. We did a very, very small brokerage transaction just after the investor was lost. And that banked enough money for a few months to pay some, some overheads and salaries. We didn't even have a bank account because it had been taken away from us. Right. We hop skipped, and jumped into that very first transaction for us a few months to the next transaction, which generated a six-figure profit with no money down. So suddenly we're then alive for a year. Okay. It, jumped, it then jumped to the next profit. We put in 5,000 pounds using the profits from the last deal. And that generated a profit of 545,000. Wow. And suddenly, we now had our seed capital yeah. a year and a half into the business. And we've kept going ever since, and probably over a dozen transactions. And we got there, really. And there's now four staff, and just exchanged a buy of supermarket for 30-something flats in, in Kent. And we've got a pub subject to planning in London. The business is, is, is rich, in, rich in opportunities and pipelines. It's been a real success. I'm not shy to say that because no. I'm not bragging at all. It's much more from a place of pride that I've created this thing out of thin air. And, and I'm very, very, very close to hitting my three-year target that I set three years ago. And that was the same amount of profit target that we're about to hit now that I was set with a three-million-pound investment right that i never had so the investment was basically no pounds and i think that if we hit that target even if it's six months late then that will definitely be one of my proudest achievements
0: yeah
1: there's been failure that was just an extreme failure wasn't it yeah in a a way to lose your investment that's that's a failure Mm. doesn't mean say it's my fault but i just wasn't prepared to walk away i i really believed
0: in all the components of the business so we carried on in In one sense, you could see that as failure, but in another, there's the success there of just kind of keeping going
1: and all of these stories I'm sharing with you they all kind of have the same nucleus, which is this drive to overcome very fundamental obstacles mm. and I guess to link it back to the whole sphere and you talk about why do I do these things, well, this isn't so much about the why but it's the my greatest challenge as a child which created my greatest or challenges this extreme, let's just call it negativity and what have you, I've somehow managed to circumnavigate the obstacles of life to to channel that, I'm going to say a tiny amount of time, but enough tiny amounts of time to massively, maybe like martial arts, to to use it to my advantage. And I've used this extreme need to prove something to myself that comes
0: from an extreme place of emotional lack if you don't mind me saying it's very nice to hear of somebody else who's been in business for themselves and uh, things have gone wrong for you but that's because you don't really hear those stories from people very often well I don't think you do so it's just refreshing to hear you say that failure is an integral part of your business and just the way that you seem to be so easy with it it's quite incredible yeah I think it's easy to
1: sit here and, because life's really good right now sure yeah but it's come with an extreme amount of pain and loss and suffering to go through those, certainly the financial ones, very easy to quantify and measure. So to come from self-creation to losing pretty much everything and then come out of what was a depression, in every sense of the word, took years and years and years and now have created this business where I'm at now is, I guess it makes it even more satisfying when you've come from that loss to keep going and going and going and going and going and going and going going. Which, even saying that, I sort of run out of breath, (laughs) ironically, and it is actually exhausting. (laughs) That's not a sustainable way to live. It's going, 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 going. But I've actually just been diagnosed with long COVID recently. And ironically, I'm sort of smiling as I say this, extreme fatigue disorder. And the reason I'm smiling is because... My energy of going, going, going has been boom, bust. Boom, bust, boom, bust. My finances have been boom, bust. What I've just said to you might sound really awful. Actually, it's fantastic because I have a diagnosis, which means I've changed my whole pace of life. I see. And I'm now living in second and third gear energetically, really looking after myself. Don't drink, don't, don't have sugar. And I've essentially got two viruses in my body that I've had. One COVID for eighteen months and one is a form of glandular fever that I've had all my adult life that I've only just found out about. And it's kind of like my new challenge mm. to rid these viruses out of my body. And I could have yeah, it could have been disastrous news when I heard and
0: I am so grateful to find out now before any serious damage is done. Wow. It really is that martial art the idea if you see very very amazing martial arts specialists that don't seem to expend very much effort you know Mm. if somebody throws a punch at them there's just a gentle move of the body and suddenly they're not in the same space anymore and they just seem so centered and sure of themselves but not in an arrogant way simply there Mm. and I get where you're coming from the idea that maybe if you've gone through that thought process and you've thought it through and you kind of feeling that way, then it just allows you to roll with those punches very successfully. The way that you've just turned around something that most people would say, oh, my God, you know, well, that was my reaction when you said it. And then you've turned that around and said, actually, this is good because it's calming things down for me. And I, I thought that is a very martial art, very zen sort of way of looking at it. I almost don't think I've got a choice, though, to think of that. <laughs> That's true. Because it's... To be very
1: blunt with you, the doctor said to me last week, it's a heart attack and stroke in five years. I already had my significant reason. I mean, we talk about why. Yes. Why would I give up drinking? I'm a a social... Drinking and food is a hobby of mine. I like socialising, and and I do have an association of alcohol within that, and I have done all my adult life. And my it's it's kind of beautifully ironic, isn't it? My why is to change my whole life around food and and alcohol is so significant that it's breathlessly easy. Whereas (laughs) if you'd asked me two months ago to stop drinking, no. Where's my why? Where's my toddler asking that question? Why? And and people now say to me, is it hard giving up drinking? It's staggeringly easy. I can see
0: why you say that. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) And it's not forever. It's not like I have an intolerance. It's just the doctor thinks probably, as things stand right now, nine months, Mm -hmm. I'll take that if that helps to increase the probability of life extension by 20 years, then again, a very significant why.
0: Thank you for being so open about your life story. And thanks also. Thank you for your time and, and, nice. and thank you for your story. Thank you
1: very much for, for coming to join me and, and asking me to be on the show. My pleasure.
0: Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Oliver for his time and honesty. Thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork and the occasional bit of artistry to help me get some traction on LinkedIn. Thanks to my long-suffering editor, Anna Gunn, to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you or someone you know could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soup Serendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.